want to look again at uh, those first few verses of Matthew 22. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? It's kind of an interesting question for a Pharisee to ask of Jesus in the first century because the Pharisees regularly taught that, well, that all of the commandments in the Old Testament were equally important. They should all be obeyed. And do you know how many commandments there are in the Old Testament? 613. I know I know the 10, but 613. Anybody can recite the 613? I'll give you the mic if you can. I, I can't do it. 613. That's overwhelming number of commandments. And the Pharisees said that, well, you should seek to obey all of them. All of them are very important. And so it's a little odd that he would ask the question, what's the great commandment? Of course, Jesus wisely responds by, well, by quoting the Shema, the most important commandment, the most recited commandment in all of the Old Testament because, well, faithful Jews would regularly recite the Shema both in the morning and in the evening. And still today, as Jews gather for worship, they always say the Shema. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 5. I would like for us to recite it together. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 5. Let's say it together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. Now, if you look at Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5, and you go back to Matthew 22, verse 37, you'll see there's a, there's a slight difference in the way that Jesus recites it and the way that it's written in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 5. In Matthew 22, verse 37, we read, you shall love, the, Jesus says, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul with all your mind. The original Shema doesn't say anything about the mind. It just simply says you're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength, which would be your body. So, so what's going on here? Is there some discrepancy, something that's, that's wrong that Jesus, did he get it wrong? Did he did not know it well? Well, in the Greek context, you know, they began to realize that much of our life is operated out of our mind but most importantly, what Jesus is saying, and as all Bible scholars point out, what the Shema is saying, that ultimately, we're called to love God with all that we are, all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. And all of them begin with loving God with all of your heart. Because Jews in the first century and Jews during Moses' day understood that we live our lives out of what is inside of our hearts. Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth ultimately speaks. Today, we think we live our lives out of our heads, but really, we live our lives out of our hearts, out of the very core of what we believe, what's at the very center of our lives. Jesus actually talks about this in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. There's an interesting exchange Jesus has with some Pharisees. Some Pharisees notice that Jesus' disciples are not washing their hands before they eat. And that's not according to the rules of the Pharisees. And so they ask, why do your disciples eat with unwashed hands, defiled hands? Because if they eat with unwashed, defiled hands, then they will become defiled by eating with unwashed hands. And Jesus has to correct their, the error of their thinking. In Matthew 7, verses 14 to 23, Jesus says this, and he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. 
And when he'd entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, there are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Thanks be to God, because I love bacon. Anybody else? I like eating bacon. Uh, There's a t-shirt that a friend of mine, Orlando Lopez, has. It says, that's too much bacon. Said no one anywhere. You can never have enough bacon. Makes everything better, right? And he said, Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. It's not what we bring in, but what's already in here that defiles us. Jesus is helping them see that ultimately what they need is a a transformed heart in order to live a transformed life. So how can we get a a transformed heart? Well, it's interesting, a New Testament scholar, Scott McKnight, has written a wonderful book called The Jesus Creed. If you don't have this book, The Jesus Creed, in your library, I would highly recommend you, you go buy it. You can Kindle it on Amazon. It'll be delivered right away. That's, what, that's how I tend to read books these days, but the Jesus Creed. And Scott McKnight points out that in this conversation that Jesus has in Matthew 22, he basically takes the 613 commandments and he narrows it down to just two. Does anybody here remember Cliff Notes from high school, maybe? English, yeah, a few of us, we'll admit it. Scarlet Letter, initially didn't read the whole thing. Moby Dick, neither. But I had the cliff notes, right? I knew the basics. Just get it down to the core. And it's hard to track with 613 commandments. But if we'll just focus on the two that Jesus highlights here, loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves, then we will be transformed. In fact, Scott McKnight writes in his book, right here, Matthew 22 to 37 to 40, right here, we discover the Jesus creed for spiritual formation. As Thomas Akempis puts it, in the Jesus Creed, Jesus has put a whole dictionary into just one dictum. Everything about spiritual formation for Jesus is shaped by his version of the Shema. For Jesus, love of God and love of others is the core. It's all about love of God and love of others. That's the core of the theology of Jesus. That's the core of his teaching. And if we want to be transformed, we just need to, to focus on, on those two things, loving God and, and loving our neighbor. But if you look at those, what Jesus says, obviously loving God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that's a quote from Deuteronomy 6. And then he says, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That's actually from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And in that, that second commandment, there, well, there's actually two things being asked of us. First, well, you do love your neighbor as yourself. The assumption is that we must love ourselves if we're going to love our neighbor well. And next week, we'll take a much closer look at that particular part of the Jesus Creed, the second part of that Jesus Creed. But if we really want to love ourselves well, well, we have to begin by by loving God. Our vertical relationship with God, there's an order to these commandments, Scott McKnight points out, and it's critical for us to understand 
That if we want to love ourselves well and love our neighbors well, we've got to begin by establishing a loving relationship with our God. Because God is love. Love comes from God. And he will show us how to love ourselves and how to love others. Because as we focus on our relationship with God, we begin to see ourselves and others as he does. As those who have been created in his very image. As those who he loves. That ultimately he's redeemed. In fact, Scott McKnight points out beautifully that if we will just focus on loving God and loving our neighbor, we will naturally do the rest of the commandments. Let's look at the Ten Commandments specifically. If you love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, with all that you are, you will naturally obey the first four of the Ten Commandments. You won't have any other gods. You won't make any idols or graven images and worship them. You won't misuse the Lord's name in vain. Because you love God, you would not want to misuse his name. And when you love God, you will honor the Sabbath as you all are doing here today, and you will gather in corporate worship of him. But as you love God, he allows you to see how he loves you and loves others the same. He will help you to begin to see how we're called to treat others. That if we love God, then we will naturally seek to love others as ourselves. And when we love others as ourselves, well, then we'll naturally obey the remaining six commandments. We'll honor our mother and father. We won't murder. We won't steal. We won't commit adultery. We won't bear a false witness against our neighbor. We won't covet what they have. We'll be happy that they have what they have because we love them. It's if we can just focus on these two commandments, everything else falls into place. I really like the way Eugene Peterson, who's a Presbyterian minister, writes uh, in the message about this. He says, let me show you, these two commands are pegs. Everything in God's law and prophets hangs from them. Two pegs. Simple, right? Now, it's one thing to know where to focus your heart and mind and your will, but it's another thing to do it. Just knowing that these are the two most important commandments doesn't really make it any easier to do it. In fact, Martin Luther and John Calvin, the fathers of the Protestant Reformation, pointed out that, that when Jesus gives this creed, these two simple commandments, and helps highlight them as the greatest of commandments, well, he really helps us see our need for grace, our need for God's mercy, our need for God's forgiveness. Because we can look at the Ten Commandments, and there are sins of commission, sins that we commit. And most Pharisees in the first century would say, you know, I, I don't have any other gods. I don't worship idols. I'm not committing adultery. I'm not stealing. I'm not bearing a false witness. And that's pretty easy to measure and say, well, I'm not committing those sins. But these two most important commandments also highlight the sins of omission when we fail to do what we ought to do. Are we really loving God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our strength, all the time? Are we loving our neighbor as ourselves all the time? I'm afraid the answer is no for all of us. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Greek word for sin there, New Testament was written in Greek, is amartano, amartano. It was an archery term that would be used to initially to talk about how a, an archer missed the mark. It, it fell short of the center of the target. And the fact is that these commandments, these two commandments, help us see that when the light of Christ and the light of his life, we don't love God as we should. We don't love our neighbor as ourselves. We need God's help 
What is the key to making sure that we can love God with all that we are? To find out, I would encourage you to turn in your Red Pew Bibles to the, the book of Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book in the Bible. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. It, it may be found, uh, well, you'll have to figure it out. <laughs> it's in your bulletin. I, I don't have it in front of me. Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 to 9. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his Holy Spirit to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, I thank you that you spoke a mighty word through Moses to the people of Israel as they were about to enter into the promised land. A a final word of encouragement, a final word of challenge, a final word of direction. So God, as we read these words, we pray that you might speak to us, that we might hear from you, and that by your spirit, you would help us see how we might apply these words to our lives today. Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Deuteronomy chapter six, verses one to nine, listen to God's word. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Deuteronomy 6, 4-5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. How do those words go from here to here? Well, Scott McKnight points out that it's a good thing to recite these words regularly. So I'd like for you to read them again with me if you can. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. What is God asking of us today in this Shema, this most important commandment exactly? I think if we will look at the original Hebrew, it it, it might help us. Now the first word in this commandment here is Shema. That's why it's called the Shema. Here, it's a command, it's an imperative. Shema, here, pay attention. This is important. Here, O Israel, the Lord. The Hebrew word for Lord there is Yahweh. It's the proper name of the God of Israel. It's the proper name of of our God. 
You see, during Moses' time, there were lots of different nations, and all of these nations had many, many, many different gods with many, many different names. But Israel had one God with one name. His name was Yahweh, the Lord. The Lord, our God. The Hebrew word for God there is Elohim. Elohim here is actually in the, the masculine plural. Most Christian scholars point out that This combination here in the Shema points to the the divine trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy. Not the greatest form of love. That's not the kind of love that is talked about here. The Hebrew word for love here is ahava. Ahava. They have a different word for romantic love. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about ahava. And ahava is the greatest form of love. Because ahava... It's a choice. It's based on a covenant. It's a choice that God has made. If you continue reading Deuteronomy chapter 7, you'll see that God tells the people of Israel that he has chosen to ahava, to love them. Not because they were the greatest of nations. No, they were the least of all people. But, but because of his ahava, his unconditional love for them, he has chosen to love them. Earlier in Genesis Ahava is used to describe how Abraham loved his son Isaac. Remember how much Abraham loved Isaac? Abraham had to wait 25 years for his son Isaac, the son of the promise, to be born. And he delighted in his son. He loved his son. He chose to Ahava, his son. Yes, the Shema is very clear that we are called to give God all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, as Jesus says, all of our mind with an ahava, a kind of love, or as it says in the Greek, agape, that unconditional, covenantal, sacrificial love that truly is a choice that must supersede any other love we have. It must be our greatest love, our love for God. You know, it's interesting this morning, my daughter Hannah is going to be installed and ordained as a, a youth deacon in our church. And it reminds me that when we were still in Dallas, and my daughter Hannah was about four years old, we showed her the wonderful movie, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. She looks kind of like Snow White, doesn't she? She's got dark hair. And, and we watched the movie, and of course, it's a beautiful story of romance and love, and Snow White sings, and the prince sees her. And of course, ultimately, she drinks the poison apple, and she's out. She's in a coma But then love's first kiss frees her from the spell, right? It was a delightful movie, sitting on the couch watching this. It was great. And when it all ended, Hannah talked about the love that Sarah and I have for each other. And she said, oh, you guys, you love just like that movie. Daddy, you love mommy the most, don't you? Now, before I went to seminary, I would have said, of course, I love mommy the most. I mean, that's the thing to say. And and actually, I did a little study on this. Parents, children need to know that you love each other. Children who see that their parents love each other feel more secure and stable. In fact, there was a study done where parents naturally show their love for each other, their affection by saying I love you and maybe a hug and a, a regular kiss every day. And I, I, try to, I do tell Sarah I love her every day that we've been married. And if, if we're physically present, I kiss her every day, try to hug her, let the kids see that I love her. Because children need to know that their parents love each other. It makes them feel more stable. And studies have shown that actually kids are, who see that their parents love them, well, they're better behaved over long periods of time. And so, and naturally, I wanted to say, sure, but, but the problem is I'd been to seminary. 
I went to Princeton, and I learned that actually what Shema means is I'm supposed to love God the most. And so I tried to explain to my four-year-old daughter, well, actually, Hannah, I love God more than mommy. Her jaw dropped. How, how, How could you love God, whom we can't see, more than mommy, whom you're married to, that we see every day? And she looked at mommy like, this is a crime. I think dad's having an affair with God, mom. Well, fortunately, Sarah's got great theology, too, and she tries to affirm Hannah right away and says, look, 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 no, no, Hannah, it's okay. It's true. Daddy loves God more than mommy, and mommy loves God more than daddy. Well, initially, this did not settle Hannah's mind. She's like, oh, my gosh, God has gotten in between mommy and daddy. What are we to do? I mean, how is it possible for you to love someone that you can't even see? How can you love God, whom we can't see, more than the people you can see? That's a great question. How can we love God, whom we can't see, honestly, more than the people or the things that we can see? Fortunately, the Apostle Paul helps us with that. In Romans, which many scholars say is the greatest letter Paul ever wrote, Romans chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, Paul writes these words, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. I don't know about you, but if you ever go through a season of life, and I've been going through this recently, where you're hurting, and you feel alone. And you, you wonder why things are happening the way they are. One of the best things I've found to do is to go on a hike. To get out in the midst of God's creation. To go to Paladar Canyon or maybe the mountains of northern New Mexico or Colorado. It's kind of cold right now. But to, but to be in the midst of God's creation. And to become reminded of God's powerful, loving presence. For he makes himself known through his creation. Some of you all may remember uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, we had Lee Strobel, a wonderful Christian author, write a book, The Case for a Creator. And he taught a Sunday school class on the basic elements of this book. And in this book, if you don't have this book, I would encourage you to buy it. And we've got it in the library, but it's a great book to read. He interviews different cosmologists and different physicists and different scientists who explained to him that in order for life to flourish on this planet, we have to have a certain gravitational pull. The earth has to be a a certain distance from the sun. We have to have a certain atmosphere, including certain level of elements like carbon dioxide and oxygen and nitrogen and hydrogen. And we've got to have a, a certain amount of water. We have to have all these different things dialed up just so in order for life to exist and flourish on this planet. And any mathematician will tell you that the probability of all these things being dialed up just the right way for life to flourish on the planet, the probability of that happening, well, that's impossible. There must be a God who created it all. His creation reveals who God is, that he exists. But we even have better than that. We've got the written word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit that that even gives a greater revelation to who God is 
And one of the reasons we gather in worship every Sunday and we gather as Presbyterians around the Word of God to hear the Word of God read and proclaimed is because we need that special revelation that only comes from God's Word, the special revelation of just how much God loves us. If you were to read Deuteronomy from the beginning of the book, Deuteronomy 1 to 6, you'll find that before Moses commands the people to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. He's been reminding them of how much God's been loving them. How our God had been so faithful to them to deliver them out of slavery in Egypt. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 32 to 34, just as a quick example, Moses says, For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or, or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of God, of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire? You remember when they were under Mount Sinai, and God was given, when they were under Mount Sinai, and God was given the Ten Commandments, and God was speaking out of fire, and they heard God's voice. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? The people of Israel were living in slavery in the midst of Egypt. Egypt was believed to be the most powerful nation at the time. And God in his powerful hand, he plucks them out of Egypt and frees them from slavery. By trials and by signs, he he does those seven plagues to free them. By wonders and and by war. By mighty hand and outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. We must be ever mindful of all that God has done for us. As we turn to God's word each and every day, we will be reminded of God's great love for us and what he's done for us. And the natural response to God's love is to love him back with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our strength. Notice that Moses gives us a little more specific direction in verses six to nine of our text on on how to take the Shema from here to here. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. We've got to say these words every day, the Shema, right? Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Say that every day. The Jews do it in the morning, they do it in the evening. They say it twice a day. You shall stretch, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the ways and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It was interesting, uh, for New Year's, my wife uh, and family, we we all went to uh, her brother's house and his wonderful wife, Mickey, has put scripture throughout the house to bless the kids, to help them see the word of God as they walk around the house. We saw all these different scriptures. We need the word of God to be present in our homes so that our kids can see it. We need to, we need to teach the word of God to our kids to make sure they, they learn it. You know, this, uh, many of y'all have heard on Tuesday uh, my mother uh, died suddenly from a uh, battle with pancreatic cancer. And uh, it was unexpected. We didn't see that coming. Unfortunately, it was, it was fast. But the, these last few days, I've had some time to reflect on, on her life and her legacy. 
And one of the greatest things my mom ever did for me and my sister is that she insisted, insisted that we go to worship and Sunday school every Sunday. And I remember as a teenager arguing my case, Mom, I do not need to go to Sunday school anymore. I know every story in the Bible, Mom. I know about Adam and Eve, and I know about Noah, and I know about Abraham, and I know about Joseph, and I know about Moses, and I know about David, and I know about Jesus, Mom. They're not telling me any new information, Mom. I really don't need to hear these stories anymore. I know every story in the Bible, Mom. She got real quiet, looked me right in the eyes, and said, you don't think I know every story in the Bible? I grew up Baptist. And we went to Sunday school and worship, and we had Sunday night worship, and we had Wednesday nights. And I started thinking, man, I'm glad I'm a Presbyterian. I know all the stories, and we need to be reminded of the stories of God's faithfulness. Reminds me of what one of my favorite seminary professor of preaching, Dr. Cleo LaRue, used to tell us, that the law of the teacher is you can't give what you don't have. You have to have a mastery of the information in order to teach it. Is that not right, Matt Klein? You've got to know economics if you're going to teach economics, right? You've got to have a mastery of the information. You've got to know the Word of God so well that you could teach the Word of God to your children and to others. He used to tell us, now don't get all complicated. He used to tell us, just tell them the story about Jesus. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them about how he was born in Bethlehem. Brought up in Nazareth, baptized in the Jordan, tempted in the wilderness, preached in Galilee, betrayed in Gethsemane, tried in Jerusalem, crucified on Calvary. But don't, don't forget to tell them the most important thing of all. On the third day, the third day is the most important day. Tell them about the third day. On the third day, Jesus rose again. Amen? And it's because he lives. Because Jesus lives today that we know my mom and my dad and your relatives who are in Christ, who have died and have gone ahead of us in glory, are now with him in paradise. For Jesus says to the criminal hanging next to him on the cross, the confessing criminal Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's our story. We need to remember it, and we need to tell it to others. As John the Apostle writes in his epistle so beautifully, 1 John 4, 9 to 11, in this, the love of God has made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, ahava, agape. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Love God. Love others. That's what it's all about. And if you're here today and you're not sure whether or not God could love you because of the things you've done, just look at the cross. And we can see at the cross of Christ, God doesn't just love us this much. He loves us this much. 
Thanks be to God for his love. May that love guide us to love God and to love others as ourselves. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for your great love, the message of your love. Help us to take the time we need to spend in your word, to meditate on your word, to memorize your word like the Shema, like the greatest commandments of Matthew 22, so that we can recite them daily, and more importantly, that we might live them out. For as we turn to your word, we see just how much you love each one of us. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who's never opened their heart to you and said, yes, Lord Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to live out this creed. I pray, Lord, that by this movement of your spirit today, you might speak to them, that they might open their heart and say, yes, Lord, I want to love you with all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my strength, all my mind, with all that I am because of your love for me. And I want to love my neighbor as myself because of your love for me. Pray this in the strong and precious name of your son who is the Christ and all God's people said, amen.